0: Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is a guest that I had recently on the show, by the name of Mr. Charles Eisenstein. So, Charles is an American public speaker and author. Uh, his works cover a wide range of topics, including the history of human civilization, economics, spirituality, and the ecology movement. Uh, key themes that he explores include anti consumerism, interdependence, and how myth and narrative influence our culture. Uh, so, Charles actually uh, attended Yale uh, and uh, Yale University and has a degree in mathematics and philosophy. So, he's lived a very uh, incredible life. He's written some amazing books. And I had him on the show recently, uh, a couple months ago, to talk about the coronation, which is an article that he wrote and some of the uh, some of the speculation that was happening around coronavirus. And he recently wrote another essay called The Conspiracy Myth. And so this episode is entirely about conspiracy theories, the mythology behind them, the evolution of them, how they are perpetrating our culture. And uh, we dive into the intersection of uh, conspiracy theory And a little bit of conspiracy theory and in the intersection uh, of climate change. And then we end up talking about uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials at the end of the episode, which is actually a blast. Uh, And I really hope that you stick around and listen to the whole thing because there's some interesting dialogue about that. Uh, So before we dive into this topic, um, just a quick reminder for all the guys that are out there. Uh, head on over to mantalks.com or connorbeaton.com and check out The Alliance. We it's, it's free right now for the first month. Uh, you can give it a try. It is basically an online men's group. So wherever you are in the world, uh, you can join The Alliance, a very powerful group. We have weekly calls. You have your own uh, men's group team that is member-led. You have resources like Dr. Robert Glover uh, that come in and, and uh, do live Q&A sessions with you. We have a monthly book club. We have fitness challenges and financial challenges uh, is just really a a powerful resource and group to be a part of so if you're looking for something to advance your work your purpose your relationship your health uh, check out the alliance okay without any further delay please welcome one of my absolute favorite guests mr charles eisenstein
1: thanks connor good to be back
0: yeah. Yeah. So, you know, your your recent episode uh, really got a lot of traction and I really enjoyed our conversation. And I don't think I've ever had a guest back on the show so quickly. But when I saw your article come out, the, the essay on conspiracy theories, I immediately was intrigued and had to have you back on the show. So I'm looking forward to to digging into this conversation. So let's just start sort of high level, broad you know, the, the article is called The Conspiracy Myth, and you really talk about conspiracy theories as cultural myths and and as as these sort of important components to our societal framework, how, how we interact with each other, how we interact with systems. Um, and, and maybe I'm extracting uh, or sort of ext- extrapolating there a little bit, but can you just speak uh, directly to the role that conspiracy theories play and how they are these sort of myths that that have evolved in our, in our society?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. (laughs) Thanks for asking. (laughs) Um, So, so I'll just, the, the essay was prompted. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but it really came up strongly because the previous essay received a lot of criticism. One of which is, Oh, Eisenstein's a right-wing conspiracy theorist. Uh, I mean, for one thing, I'm like, right wing. I mean, gosh, I've been a leftist, you know, since I was 15 years old. Um, <laughs> so that was interesting um, that uh, criticism of the establishment is now considered right wing. But the conspiracy theory part came up because I, in, in the coronation in that earlier essay, I gave uh, some space to conspiracy theories. And I said... The way things are going, sure is juicy material for a conspiracy theory, and so people thought that I was trying to smuggle in my closet uh, conspiratorial beliefs. <laughs> so, so I wrote this other, so I wrote this conspiracy myth essay, um, in part just to clarify, but also because it's it's um, a very productive line of thinking, and I'm sure some people looked at the title and they're like, oh, phew, you know, he's not a conspiracy theorist. He doesn't think that these are actually true and there already lies a problem Mm -hmm. because everything is about is it actually true or is it in some other category of untrue fantasy um, manipulation disinformation and so forth and this literalistic way of seeing the world prevents us from understanding the world so when i when i say a myth it's not a fantasy it's not a delusion nor, but, but it is a vehicle for truth. Hmm. A myth is a vehicle for truth, not necessarily literal truth. The truth of a myth does not depend on its literal objective factuality, mm-hmm. which is why if you're in conversation with, say, an indigenous person and they say the world was spun by Spider-Woman, you're not going to say you're wrong. Let me prove it to you here's a geology textbook, you know, where if a Hindu says the world rests on the back of a turtle, you're not going to say, gotcha, you're wrong, and I'm right. Um, So I I like to take the same uh, approach to conspiracy theories and Mm. and to look like there is, like when I say the world is resting on the back of a turtle, something in your body knows that that's true. Mm. I will hazard to guess that there's a vibration in that or that the world was woven by Spider-Woman, not the character in Spider-Man.
0: Yeah. That would be that would be interesting all of a sudden, you know, the yeah, DC universe clashes. Yeah. I'm sure some people would be very, very happy with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I spent uh, a large part of the essay describing what are some of the truths that ride the conspiracy theories. Mm. One of them is that there's more to this world than we're being told. Mm-hmm. Another is that uh, some power unfriendly to human beings is actually in control of things behind the scenes, pulling the puppet strings. Hmm. The literal conspiracy theory says it's this evil Illuminati. And when I say conspiracy theory, I'm talking about like the overarching one. Yeah. They're not you know Enron or yeah. COINTELPRO or... Uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I mean, those were conspiracies, okay? But I'm talking about the, the the mythology that says you can explain the workings of this tragic, horrible world by an evil group of humans who are in control of things. So that's that's one expression of a deeper truth, which is that some power unfriendly to humanity and to life is in control of things. Hmm. But you could say that you don't have to s- locate that power in a group of conspirators. You could say that power is capitalism. That mm-hmm. power is patriarchy. That power is white supremacy, something like that. Yeah. Um, really where I located is actually underneath all of those three things, which is the story of separation, mm-hmm. um, a deeper mythology that holds us as separate from each other and separate from nature. Mm-hmm. That That's ultimately what uh, scaffolds all of our systems like patriarchy and and capitalism uh, and that pulls the strings uh, and that inhabits all of us too. This puppet master inhabits all of us. So in a way the conspiracy myth is, it's it's an exporting of something that inhabits all of us onto an external entity that you can then blame and fight. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, the conspiracy myth is actually not it's 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 part of the mythology of separation, which says the way to solve a problem is to find the enemy and dominate the enemy. Hmm. So in a way, conspiracy theories are quite conventional. And I could go on, there's more um, truths that ride upon that vehicle. Um, yeah, maybe, well,
0: I, yeah. yeah, I was just gonna say, you know, I think it's it's interesting, right? The, around this the mythology of of separation and the role that that plays and it, you know I, I mean i i usually in some ways tie things back to to jung because i'm a big Yun-Yang proponent and and you know he he believes that a lot of our external structures were just external manifestations of our internal architecture for lack of a better term and so we we create things out in the world based on how we view our internal Workings, and that a lot of those external structures that we experience—the the myths, the frameworks, the you know organizations—are are built based off of the the ego in some capacity, based off of its its framework and its its uh, sort of desire to to be infinite, to live forever, to never be seen. And so the ego is very much a, a me versus them, a me versus the other, and it and it is very much removed and separate. So, and, and, you know, we kind of see this through different versions of uh, organized religion where there is that separation of us from nature, you know, and there's that pulling apart. So can you just speak a little bit more to the the, the sort of history around this myth of separation and, and the, the pulling us apart from one another, from nature, from, you know, the, the things that are are in our reality?
1: Yeah, I could. Um <laughs> Maybe I'll I'll enter that through the lens of Carl Jung. Okay. So in the conspiracy narratives, one of the things you hear a lot is that just couldn't be coincidence. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins funded by the Gates Foundation, et cetera, et cetera, the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, made this, this um, what was it called? Event 2020, you know, almost like prediction yeah. of of an epidemic, you know, like there's all these things like that. that, And the more you look, the more you find. Yeah, And it's like, if that couldn't be coincidence, therefore somebody must have arranged it. There must be a hidden intentional power here. But think about Carl Jung's understanding of synchronicity. Hmm. So here he is in Manhattan having a conversation about I can't remember ancient Egypt or something like that and bang, something bangs on the window and it's a scarab beetle, Hmm. like on the, you know, in like that's hit the window of a Manhattan skyscraper. I might be mixing up these details a little bit. Okay. Um, But these are meaningful coincidences. So does that mean, well, that couldn't have just, I mean, that's just too unlikely to have just happened randomly. So did somebody send that scarab beetle? Did somebody know that this conversation was happening and was listening in and was the FBI and they sent this scarab beetle to bang on the window? That is one explanation that preserves causal agency as Mm -hmm. the story of separation understands it. Because it doesn't require an intelligence in the world outside of human intelligence Mm -hmm. or outside of some locus of intelligence that's separate from the world. Yeah, But that's not how Jung understood it. He understood that there is an intelligence in the world that brings things um, into spatial temporal alignment in some kind of communication with the psyche. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we could say the same thing about conspiracy theories. Like, yeah, all these things happen and it couldn't be coincidence, but they have to happen this way in order to flesh out a story that has a psychological resonance.
0: Mm.
1: Because this feeling of they're out to get me, the, there is an evil power controlling life. I mean, these things are, are deep psychological wounds that are true. I mean, these, this suspicion is uh, abundantly confirmed in the life experience of anybody who has grown up in a conventional school system and a market economy. Mm-hmm. Like there's somebody out there, and they are not looking out for your best interest
0: yeah
1: uh, okay so so the idea that uh, events can coordinate themselves meaningfully, and that evidence can appear uh, in alignment with a psychology and a world narrative and a self narrative, like that idea. Without that, that, it's not God doing it, it's not some Ill- Illuminati doing it, but that it just happens as a part of reality. That is outside of the story of separation. Mm. The story of separation posits a reductionistic force based causality. <laughs> something happens because something made it happen. And you can theoretically fully understand the universe if you could somehow analyze. Uh, fix the position of every particle and every force acting on those particles. In fact, that's what technology does. And it works in a certain domain. Hmm. But it actually doesn't accommodate all of reality. It creates a a hole that we go down into that looks like all of reality. Mm -hmm. But it is actually a very narrow realm. And paradoxically, the farther we drill down into that hole, the more of uh, reductionistic causality we understand the less we actually understand about this universe. So a, a new story of interbeing accepts that intelligence, consciousness, purpose, agency, and choice are not the exclusive province of human beings, but they, they are in all beings and in the collective of all being. So that meaning, coordination, Orchestration can happen in the events of our lives, in the events in the world, without there having to be a human being or a group of human beings, or indeed any separable agent uh, arranging everything. Hmm. Now you can take it another level and say, okay, actually, this non-human uh, or or beyond human, other than human a ranger actually does exist, but it it doesn't exist on the the level of force-based causality that we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. These beings exist on the level of myth. To say that something is a myth, that the Illuminati are a myth, that the, you know, draconian Anunnaki uh, extraterrestrials are a myth. That's not the same as saying that they don't exist but they exist on a mythic plane. Hmm. And if you want to interact with them, you have to work on the mythic plane. So this gets really really heady here.
0: Um, yeah, no no no. I mean I, I think I think what's you know what I hear you saying in in many ways and maybe I'll just try and distill this down for myself is that that there is there there is uh, an interconnectivity between all the events that are manifesting within our life and within our world and that our psychological makeup is some degree really craves and desires some causal force some sort of you know person entity being organization to explain why these things are happening and this i almost see it as like a removal of the unexplainable or removal of the mystery of life or existence right that that our our ego or the you know the part of us that wants to control so badly would prefer that the illuminati is real rather than uh just sort of like synchronistic events and chaotic events unfolding being real you know because that's almost much more terrifying because the idea that I think Alan Moore had a quote, something along the lines of, of, you know, the reason why conspiracy theories are so popular or important for people is it gives them something to believe in because the the truth, quote unquote, truth is much more terrifying in the sense that uh, no one's really at the wheel, right? That no one's, nobody's really in control and the world is largely rudderless. Now, I think that's also an extreme version, sort of saying it's all out of control. But I think what I hear you saying is that there is that that sort of dual nature that we we both have a have a, an impact on some of the actions that are unfolding, but there's also a large part of, of the system that we don't control. And so I'm curious if we can just come back to the role that historically, and maybe not getting into the history of it, but the role that conspiracy theories have played in creating our culture and creating, you know, the, the role that, that those myths have played in sustaining us um, either in bringing us together or, or separating us more and, and where you feel like that falls.
1: Yeah. So I think you, you uh, reframed that or um, restated that really accurately and, and eloquently uh, it is about a desire for control and a discomfort with not being in control, a discomfort with the mystery um, mm. A discomfort with the humility that comes from knowing that there are other intelligences at work. Conspiracy theories help to preserve the exclusive human domain of the, the master of the universe, mm-hmm. where if things happen, it's either random or it's if it's intelligent, it's happening because of us. And and historically, that mindset it, it you know it took thousands of years to develop and coincides with the development of technology. If you believe that the world is just a bunch of generic particles, building blocks, protons, neutrons, electrons, um, bouncing around according to mathematical forces, then, and, and with no intelligence to it, then we are the random victims of natural forces. hmm If you similarly believe that the world is composed of lots of separate selves, other human beings, and maybe less complete selves, less developed selves that we call animals and plants and bacteria and viruses, then again, your well-being depends on exercising control and domination over these other selves, which are trying to do the same vis-a-vis yourself. Hmm. So control... Is, becomes the, the, the uh, stairway to heaven in the story of separation. And progress becomes a matter of ascending that stairway to exercise more and more control over the world. Mm-hmm. So any suggestion that there are limits to the capacity, our capacity to control the world, uh, or that um, things do not happen or that there are other causal mechanisms besides force-based causality, that renders us quite helpless. Or actually, what I would say is that it invites us into a different kind of power. Not the power to make things happen, but the power to listen and participate in these larger intelligences. And then we become capable of a lot more than is possible through our own ability to exert force in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's I think that's this, you know, go ahead. It's a very different mode of technology. It's yeah. it's um, and it's what indigenous people all over the world that I have encountered at least practice. Their their way of life depends a lot on observing, and listening, and participating, and recognizing that the world is bursting with intelligence Mm -hmm. and that we are not alone here but that that we are part of this larger intelligence very different mindset so yeah Yeah. to to link that to conspiracy theory is it's a bit of a of a stretch but you can see how it's how the as you said um it makes it controllable in theory if all of the horrors of this world are caused by conspirators in theory we know what to do about it Mm -hmm. and it's an other and we're blameless I mean, yeah. this is actually the same coming up in the um civil unrest and the uh uh racism protests and stuff. It's another uh easy diagnosis that the problem is this bad these bad people called racists, or this bad thing called racism. Uh and it, it makes very complex, deep historical problems into something seemingly quite simple, something that now there's something to fight. Yeah. I don't think that this problem or that any of our main civilizational crises right now are going to be solved by a fight. We are facing an initiation into other ways of dealing with our dilemmas and another understanding of of the world, you know, uh, of an intelligent world. Yeah,
0: yeah, which is, you know, I feel like that's a <laughs> that could be a whole other, you know, deviation and yeah, but but I I agree. I do think that, you know, what you're talking about in terms of indigenous people largely having modalities that in, that are I guess inclusive in some ways that don't see us as sort of separate from the universe around it or unique from the universe around it, but an integral part of it, an interconnected part of it. And I think that's where, you know, Jung and his psychological framework was quite potent because he, you know, took into account the collective unconscious, which is a a form of that to some degree, a form of that interconnectivity and how, you know, what we do, what we choose to do, what we think about, what we experience impacts the collective consciousness of of all beings in, in some capacity. But I think one of the things that, that you said is quite interesting that I'd like to dig into is, is a little bit around just continuing down this path of of the separation myth, because a lot seems to have unfolded out of that, right? As we have leaned into separation and, you know, that has sort of been embedded into the religious frameworks, especially things like Catholicism and, and Christianity and you know, there's, there's other, um, not to sort of like put them on the spot or call them out or say that they're bad or wrong or anything like that, but it, there is a separation inherent built in saying that man is, you know, created by God and separate from nature and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I'm actually curious if the erosion of those religious frameworks, in, and this is just a, a your opinion uh, question the erosion of some of those religious frameworks. We know we see church rates dropping. We see less people going into church sort of believing in these religious frameworks. Do you see a correlation in, in the rise of conspiracy theories and the rise of uh, some of these beliefs and ideologies and sort of clinging to that, that separatist mentality coming from or, or being spurned from the, the sort of decrease in religious fundamentalism or, or or is that sort of not necessarily in the, in the framework?
1: Well, I don't think that we are seeing a decrease in religious fundamentalism. Hmm. I would say that conspiracy theories present another kind of fundamentalism. Uh, it's hmm. the one thing that explains everything else. It's the yeah. one, and it's the one key to salvation. And it's the one truth. Yeah. So I think it's part of a wave of growing fundamentalism there's been a decline in church participation, but a rise in fundamentalism across many religions. Like there's a lot of Jewish fundamentalists now, way more than when I was a kid, uh, who who turn it into this um, totalizing discourse that explains all of the world, that organizes all of reality, uh, makes and, and it makes sense of the world. So I think that fundamentalism um, and conspiracy theories and other kinds of fundamentalism, I mean, even like, it, the The fundamentalist mindset also infuses the climate change movement mm. where a very complex ecological crisis is reduced to a matter of one thing carbon dioxide and this is, I wrote a book about this you know I'm a very fervent environmentalist mm-hmm. but I think it's a big mistake to reduce environmentalism and to reduce green to a matter of carbon dioxide emissions um, anyway so so all of these varieties of fundamentalism that have they have a religious form, they have a secular form, but it's not actually secular, it's another religion. All of these forms of fundamentalism are a way that people cope with the disintegration of our sense-making narratives. The, the, it's, it's the unraveling of reality that is. Frightening, and, and and people retreat from that uh, into these dark fundamentalist corners, where mm-hmm. now we have certainty again. It's like it's like we're we've been trapped in this in this windowless hut, uh, and and now the the walls are starting to crumble, and the light is pouring in, and and we could venture out into that light. Um, into a new world uh, that we sense all of us is awaiting and is possible. But it is scary to do that, to, to go outside of these walls, these walls of the familiar. So instead we cower into a corner. That's called fundamentalism. Ultimately that corner will become less and less hospitable, but still the choice of whether to come out and play is always a choice. We can, you know, as that, corner becomes less hospitable, we can, you know, nail up blankets, you know, and, and, and stay in our dark little corner as long as we want to, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it sounds, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we've largely done that. What I hear you saying is that we've largely done that historically, right. That we have evolved in the last couple thousand years and we've moved away from this sort of inclusive model that, that some indigenous people had And we've moved into this separation model where we are looking for this very singular answer to our problems to, I mean, at a basic level, I almost, you know, drill it down to the individual. And it's very much similar to if we're having a problem in our relationship or if we're having a problem in our job, we look for that single answer. That's mm-hmm. going to say, ha, there it is. That's what's causing the problem. I can fix that. And if I can fix that, everything's going to be okay. And I can soothe my fear. I can soothe my, my nervous system, you know, that is getting yeah. very reactive.
1: And where do you think we got that idea that there's one thing that can solve all of our problems? Oh, man.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, my, my mind goes to, again, my mind pulls back to the ego. But I'm, I'm curious to see where, you, where you're taking this. Money. Ah, uh-huh. okay, money, say more. It's our say immersion
1: more. in a money economy that fosters the belief that there's one thing that can solve all of your problems. Because huh. that's kind of how it is in a monetized economy. Whether you're hungry or cold or sick or, um, you know, whatever, or you know, whatever need that you have, you, in this economy, you meet it with money. Hmm. Whereas in a traditional culture, in a village culture, in an indigenous hunter-gatherer culture, you didn't meet your needs with one thing, uh, but you sourced different needs from different people, from the community, from nature. Uh, So that way of life made it a lot harder to reduce the whole world to one thing. Hmm. It's also a mindset that that, that, uh, science fosters. Because in science, the one thing that is real is number. Uh, If you reduce something to data, to numbers, if you can quantify it, then you can understand it. If you Mm -hmm. could quantify all of your brain states, Mm -hmm. all of the electromagnetic and chemical states of your brain, maybe you could actually define love. And you could measure whether somebody is actually in love or not. Like that's Mm -hmm. the... And that's the ideology of science that is rarely stated in such an extreme form. Yeah. But so, so basically, I mean, it doesn't get much more fundamental to our culture than money and science. So this way of thinking is not something that you can just overthrow by choosing a different belief, because that belief is constantly reinforced by our economic and ideological environment. Uh, and and by Hollywood, you know, the idea that you can solve a problem by finding the bad guy and destroying the bad guy, finding you know it's the racists, it's the white supremacists, it's the one percent, um, it's the corporate executives, it's I mean the you know liberals and conservatives, both sides, they have their their favorite bad guy, and and that's why I think that that um, this polarization in which both sides identify each other as the problem is the problem. Mm. Because as long as you're focused on the bad guy, you're not going to go a level deeper Yeah, and, and look at the real causes of things.
0: It's well, a it, perfect
1: it, way to maintain the status quo. hundred
0: percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it seems to like shut down our capacity to just listen. You know, I think that one of the, one of the interesting things that you talked about before with the indigenous cultures and, and some of the more, uh, for lack of a better terminology, like the inclusive models that exist, uh, whether it's that or or other models, that it requires a deeper kind of listening, right? A, a, a kind of listening where we are open to our constructs, our beliefs, our narratives, our frameworks, potentially not being right or accurate, right? And that kind that of seems that, yes. Yeah, 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 go ahead.
1: Yeah. It's the kind of listening that only happens if you're not so sure that you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, so so where do, where do we go when we live in a world where we are as human beings we seem to be largely conditioned to crave knowing, to to we sort of cling to this this. And I think that's why conspiracy theories are so they're becoming so popular because I think a lot of people they're sort of rebellious, they're counterculture in some way. Um, but also there is a, a form of righteousness that comes in it mm-hmm. right that's sort of couched in well, I believe this conspiracy theory and it's the truth. I know I've done the research yeah. I you know
1: So So here's another thing that I want to bring in the the migration to conspiracy theories is totally natural and understandable if you're coming from a place where you thought you knew. And now, one by one, the things that you thought you knew are revealed as false. So, if you, you know, had believed fully in the efficacy of modern high-tech pharmaceutical medicine, and that this is the most advanced medicine in the world, and, and you, you, know, you get sick, And you go to the doctor and the doctor can't fix you. And you go to another doctor and another doctor. And this doctor says, it's all in your head. And, and, and you're told that you're crazy and you're given psychiatric medication because, you know, you must be making this up. And finally you go to some alternative practitioner and says, oh, here's what it is. And then they give you something that Wikipedia and quackwatch.com say is pseudoscience and quackery and it works. Like I had a friend who had severe debilitating menstrual cramps every month for her entire life, went to every doctor, nothing. And then she went to an acupuncturist and it was better after one session, 90% better after one session and totally gone after a few sessions. Hmm. So when you have something like that, then you're like, okay, something that I had accepted as truth itself wasn't true. And I've been, this is what authority has been telling me is true. Hmm. What else are they telling me that, that is true that may not be true? So the, the story starts to unravel. And it's very natural to step into, well, they've been lying to us. The, what we had seen as good is actually diabolical. Huh. So in a way, conspiracy, that kind of conspiracy, is a natural stepping stone into the unknowing. Hmm. so there's really nothing wrong with it and i and I, I wanted to bring that up also to say that cons- the word the, the term conspiracy theory is very often used as a smear uh, or a slur uh, to discredit anything that deviates from the established narrative yeah so in fact, I think that most of the pieces of the established narrative are either are in some way unsound uh, either they're incomplete or they are uh totally wrong and, and distorted. Yeah. I certainly live my life, um, you know, I mean, I haven't been to a doctor since 1991, I think. Uh, and I've, you know, had abundant confirmation of my, what were initial suspicions when I first encountered Chinese medicine in 1991. And anyway, so that's a whole other rabbit hole. But but just to say that I, by, by talking about conspiracy theory as as myth, I don't want to discredit all of the pieces from which conspiracy theories are built because i think that there is there there's that that we as a society have gone down into one of these one of these holes um, that looks like all of reality but it's actually a very narrow cramped ghetto of reality and so you know the, 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 and this is another of the truths that rides on top of conspiracy theory, which is question everything. Uh, don't believe what you've been told, what has been established, even as truth. Hmm. Um, and and it doesn't mean that it's all wrong either. Like, I know quite a few people who believe that the Earth is flat. Uh, and that this this, you know, conventional astronomy and everything built around it is a hoax. And these are some, some of these are very intelligent people with like Ivy League educations. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, let's put everything on the table and I will abandon my conviction that the earth is round. And I I did that. And what I came to was, actually, I think that the earth is round, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it wasn't because I had been, it wasn't because I was uh, unthinkingly blinding, blindly accepting that as dogma. Um, but it's because I, after stepping into the unknown, like it's, it's pretty brave to, to, to abandon things that are so core to your identity, to mm-hmm. your world. I mean, it's really, it's like vertigo when, when reality falls apart like that. Ultimately, we're going to have to take one step after another, after another into that realm. Yeah. Because the reality that we've been occupying as a culture is driving the planet to ruin well, okay, I'm not going to say we have to. Uh, we could continue driving the planet to ruin. Yeah. But I would like to invoke the possibility that we will choose otherwise. Hmm. I want to make this choice conscious. And and one way to make it conscious is to point out that there are other possibilities out there beyond what our education and our systems have narrated to us as real and true. And Mm -hmm. I hope that everybody listening has had, has been blessed at least once with an experience that defies conventional explanation. Those experiences are a medicine. They are a gift. And if you accept that gift and don't just reject it and categorize it as, well, that was weird, or I must've been imagining that, or that person must've been lying to me, or whatever, not going to think about that. But if you actually accept that and let it do its work, it will unravel your entire reality. Because mm-hmm. if that's true, then what's true? And if that's true, then what's true? And then what's true? And then what's true? Then what's true? So we are, we are constantly given these, these, these offerings, these mm-hmm. medicinal gifts by the beings who are outside the bounds of conventional reality but that indigenous people totally recognize mythic cultures totally recognize, but we're beginning, we're being given gifts by these beings, each one of which is an invitation to come out and play. Mm. And I just want to honor those gifts, thank the givers and activate the gift that maybe many of the people listening to this conversation have received and say, yeah, that is sacred that experience is sacred and and to invite invite us all to to really honor those experiences
0: yeah so so powerful i mean i think i definitely want to go down that path here in a second because i think you touched on some things that i really wanted to to navigate into um i think it's interesting because the the conspiracy theories and, and our relationship to mythology and myth. I mean, myth plays historically has played such an important aspect of our culture and our creation of our societies and our creation of who we are individually. But it seems like, to your point, to what you're saying, it almost sounds like we've reached this plateau, this precipice, this, this point in, in history where we don't seem to be able to reconcile with the proverbial shadow culturally that seems to be showing up, right? So just like we have a psychological shadow, we very much have a, a cultural shadow. America has its own shadow. And it seems like we are struggling to come to terms with some of the pieces of our past, some of the pieces of what we've created. And reality as we know it, in some ways seems to be deconstructing right what we what we think is true seems to be getting deconstructed and that's very similar to again like when people go through dark night of the soul or they you know they they get fired from a a job that they've been in for 20 years and all of a sudden what they know to be true is suddenly flipped on its head and we seem to be going through this cultural phase of of deconstructing what we know to be true let's just can you just speak to that like you know maybe why you feel like that's happening or the um, maybe even just the importance that that deconstruction plays? Because I think for many people, I hear a lot of people saying, I can't even tell what's true anymore. Like how do you even know what's true? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in the last couple of months. And I think for most people, that is just the most horrific and terrifying sort of sentiment for us to be living in in this current time.
1: I mean, I feel the same thing. You know, the the the, our our traditional go-to sources for truth are not delivering reliable truth anymore. Yeah. The New York Times, you know, CNN, uh, the CDC, wherever we society used to have a pretty universal, not entirely, but a pretty universal agreement that certain things were reliable sources, Uh, academic papers. For example, um, this is a big thing now. To, uh, um, major papers that were published in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine have been retracted, that mm-hmm. were instrumental in guiding policy, uh, and and that's just the tip of an iceberg of just uh, you know pharmaceutical industry uh, influence on research and publication, and mm-hmm. in general, like so, academia, the media. These are these were the two main sources of truth. Uh, the media and academia, objective science and objective reporting. And neither of them are very objective anymore. Mm. They're, they are um, instruments, especially the media, is an instrument of narrative warfare. So of course you can't trust and you don't know what's true anymore
0: no.
1: because they're not actually serving the truth. They're serving persuading you of something. Mm. There's, and, and that is a mentality of control, actually.
0: Can, can, can you say more about narrative warfare? Because I feel like that is such a important piece to the conspiracy theory, uh, to just con- to conspiracy theories in general, but the role that narrative warfare seems to be playing in our current yeah. culture.
1: All right, so if you um, understand so the basic so this starts with the basic solution template of defeat the enemy mm. and the problem is solved. now if so so good defeats evil, that is the storyline to, to a better world. That's you know we've seen a million Hollywood movies in which that is basically the plot. All right. So who's good and who's evil? Well, good is the side that I'm on. And if the solution to the problem is to defeat evil, then anything that I do to overcome the other side is by definition good. We see this in American foreign policy. America equals good. So anything that serves American interests is therefore good, even if it is you know, supporting torturers in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, if they're on the, but they're on our side, so this is part of um, the march toward uh, freedom and democracy for the world. Hmm. Orwell actually identified this in 1984, where, where the party's goal is power itself. And they have an ideology that that's because when we have complete power, we'll be able to make the, a perfect world. But of course, that never comes. So the party ends up serving power itself, which makes it actually evil. And in fact, anybody who is not serving truth but is serving power instead actually becomes evil, which is what all sides are um, influenced by. So, okay, so you want to win because that's good. You're good and winning is good. Therefore, if any data point comes up, if any truth comes up that doesn't serve your narrative, that must be suppressed. And if anything comes up, even if it's false, if that does support your holy cause, then you embrace that. This could be overt. It could be, yeah, I know that's not true, but boy, it's going to really, you know, be impactful. Um, Like I think a lot of the, okay, like I'm no Trump supporter, but I think that a lot of the Russiagate stuff was, um, as uh, Van Jones put it, a nothing burger. Mm -hmm. uh, And that the people who, Propagated these narratives actually knew that, Hmm. but you know they're like, well, okay, probably there wasn't actual collusion, but you know he's a really bad guy, and so if that's not true, he must have done some other bad thing. So it's basically true, you know. But often it's more subtle. The way that we recruit falsehoods into our narratives and deny inconvenient truths—it's not so conscious. It's like some news item comes in, and. Uh, uh, and, and, and it serves your position. Uh, say, like, you, uh, you think that um, 5G is causing uh, coronavirus, or causing COVID-19, okay? Maybe that's your theory. Uh, and so you read something about, about outbreak centers, uh, all of the main epicenters were places where there were new 5G installations. And you're like, aha, I knew it you're not going to actually investigate that. You're not gonna scrutinize that. You're not gonna say, okay, was there really a 5G installation in Wuhan? And um, did they actually turn it on then? Like, how do you actually know that? Mm -hmm. You're probably not, because you're like, yeah, that must be true. Whereas if something comes in that doesn't fit your narrative, you're gonna be like, okay, are we sure about that? You know, is is that, is that, um, you know, where's that coming from and, and did they take this into account and let me see the raw data, and, right? So, so we have these ways to, to filter out the, the, in, the inconvenient truths. So that is part of the apparatus of narrative warfare. It's, and it comes from uh, putting victory ahead of truth, mm. basically. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like, what do we value here? What is our highest, what do we serve? You cannot serve, as it is said, you cannot serve two masters. Hmm. At some point, you have to choose whether you serve victory or whether you serve truth. Same thing in social justice. Sometime you will have to choose whether you serve healing society or whether you serve punishment, whether you serve a more beautiful world or whether you serve looking good as somebody who's done a great thing in the world. Yeah. Like, what if what it takes is that you. What if what it takes to heal the world is that you have to admit publicly that you were wrong? Hmm. What if you have to let go of the other side ever admitting that they were wrong, ever being shown up for being wrong, ever getting punished, ever getting held to account now i 'm not saying that people shouldn't sometimes be held to account, like but what does that actually mean mm-hmm. if we 're moving beyond punishment, what does it mean to hold someone to account?
0: Mm-hmm. Like, there
1: are these basic concepts that are virtually are, are very rarely questioned, and so yeah, I guess it really comes down to this whole thing about narrative warfare it, it comes down to what are we actually serving here
0: Yeah, well, I, I like the way that you you just pulled in like the victory versus truth, you know, because I think and when i when I look at American culture and sort of nationalistic tendencies and and pillars, victory is certainly at the forefront, right? Victory and, and the pride of nationalistic victory is, is yeah. certainly embedded Donald in, Trump,
1: we're going to win. We're going to win yeah, so much, you're going to get sick of winning.
0: Right, yeah, win, exactly. Win, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's sort of like jammed down, you know, yeah. people's throats constantly. I'm curious, you, you you touched on a few things. You touched on, uh, on the idea of uh, ignorance at one point, and I know that this was a sort of, a, a, something that jumped out to me in the article was, was ignorance, I think you call it ignorance as a virus. and And the idea that we we sort of misrepresent some of the facts. And I, and I heard you kind of just point to it there that when we when we believe that we're on the side of good, right? when we're when we believe that we're on the side of good, there's a hefty confirmation bias that immediately comes in. and right. And there seems to be ignorance just manifesting fairly heavily on all sides of the spectrum right now. And so I'm wondering if you could just speak to ignorance as a virus, how it plays into conspiracy theories, um, you know, the, the mythology and, and sort of spreading of it. And and how do we actually, we'll get to the other part, but how do we actually com- combat that? You know, how do we combat ignorance? Because that seems to be something that is uh, very, very challenging right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, not to pick on your words, but probably... Yeah combating ignorance is not the right metaphor.
0: Yeah, as soon as I it's said a, it I was like, mm. yeah. it's amazing how, how insidious <laughs> this
1: war these war terminology is, you know. Yeah. From combating ignorance to fighting climate change, you know, to the war on drugs. Yeah. Uh, I mean we cast everything as well, I'm exaggerating here but but the tendency is to cast things as a fight. Yeah. A combat. Um so ignorance you know that word is used in different ways. Uh, I guess really it's about a habit of ignoring things. And why do we ignore things? It's because they disrupt our self-image, our identity, <laughs> our comfort, um, our uh, the 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 world that we've the understanding of the world that we have arranged, the sense that we make of things. So. To step out of ignorance requires becoming comfortable with the unknown. Requires feeling safe to drop a a self-image and an identity. Hmm. It comes from knowing that you are loved, even if you're wrong. And that might require a lot of unlearning, a lot of deprogramming just thinking of school and how we were rewarded for being right and how just today on social media, if you put the wrong thing, I mean, you can just, you know, your friends on Facebook will rip you a new one. (laughs) Like like being wrong is tantamount to, to, to having committed a sin. Hmm. So ironically, even if the intention is to combat wrong ideas those tactics i think further entrench the wrong ideas because they contribute to a feeling of of uh unsafety of not being loved and accepted of needing to be right because otherwise if you're not right you get attacked so i need to be right what right actually means is that you conform. That's what the mind interprets right as. I mean, for, for the ego, right means that other people accept you. That's how, that's how I- ideas are, are um, enforced in society. It's, it's in-group, out-group dynamics, um, acceptance and rejection. And that, you know, in a way it can be good if, you're, if, if you are in a healthy culture, like say a, a, an indigenous culture, Social pressure and the the pressure of conformity can um, maintain people in pro-social, pro-ecological beliefs. But I think that our society has a lot of um, belief structures that do not serve humanity or life, and therefore this this conformity is a problem. And Mm -hmm. in such times those who are rather shameless and less affected by um, these uh, mechanisms of social conformity uh, are, are valuable. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, but to go back to ignorance, uh, the openness to new knowledge, it, it happens um, when we know ourselves to be accepted and loved and safe, uh, whether or not we're right. Cause it's, it's kind of humiliating mm-hmm.
0: you know, yeah.
1: To, to realize you were wrong. Like, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I feel like we, you know, I- ignorance and shame avoidance sort of go hand in hand, right? Like our mm-hmm. desire, we, we as human beings are so fascinating when it comes to wanting to avoid the, the simple experience of shame. You know, I mean, and I, I talked about this the other day about like the dangerous rise of social shaming, you know, how, when we see somebody that we think is wrong or disagrees with our perspective, that we are so quick to use shame as a a tool of social conformity, right? Of trying to get people to conform to our narratives, our version of truth. And that we largely, historically, as human beings, have tried to avoid feeling shame. And and that's embedded in many different cultures, right? That That we want to avoid feeling shame. Or if we've done something shameful, There are very extreme forms of of punishment. And so, you know, it it almost seems like ignorance is a part of that. It's like if I can just be ignorant to certain things, I don't have to feel shame. You know, I can just reject people, I can reject their viewpoint, I can reject what they're saying and be sort of ignorant to maybe how I might be wrong as a means of trying to avoid this experience of, of feeling that shame because I am wrong. Does that, make, does
1: that yeah yeah and I can, I can imagine other cultures um where shame is not caused by being wrong hmm. about something mm-hmm. uh, m- many indigenous cultures value shame very highly hmm. it's it's how the culture maintains its integrity if if you deviate from cultural norms uh, and and you're discovered, then you are ashamed and that keeps you from deviating from those norms and those mm-hmm. norms might serve life. I mean, I would love to be in a culture where I felt uh, enough trust to, to welcome shame uh, because really what shame is on another level is the breakdown of a false self-image. It's like when you're shown publicly to be different than you said you were and mm-hmm. different than you thought you were. So there's this image and it breaks down. And like the the chemical bonds of that edifice, they're released, which is why you flush hmm. uh, and feel heat. Like there's an energy release with shame. Like that's actually a good thing. It's just when that is used the way it is today and where... Having been wrong and having had a false self-image is associated with your basic worth mm. and your acceptability, uh, your your your, um, yeah, like your your basic worth as a human being, mm. and your lovability. Mm-hmm. That is really damaging.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we seem we seem to be entering into a, a space where that lovability and that acceptance within the social culture is being very polarized, right? There's a lot of people that are sort of trying to seek acceptance and then a lot of people that are that are actively revolting against any sort of or rejecting any sort of social conformity and sort of saying social conformity is the quote unquote problem, right? It's the thing that that is the issue. Yeah. So And
1: in an us versus them mentality, in a good versus evil mentality, the 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 evil ones are fundamentally on a soul level inferior to the good mm. ones. Like there's something wrong with their very soul, like like you know, in in the uh, in Hollywood movies, like why is the bad guy bad? It's because he's bad, like you know, Thanos. You know, he's just bad. They they and the movies portray the uh, evil characters as just exulting and glorying in wickedness. So that is the suggestion that we are given to understand our opponents, mm-hmm. um, and and the tactic then that that suggests is that you show how bad they are. Mm-hmm. So it's no coincidence here that um, that shame uh, is associated with this fundamental fear of being unlovable. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's part of the formula of good versus evil. Yeah. It's the sneaking suspicion, maybe I'm evil. Yeah. You know, all of the, like, and and hasn't anyone who's done personal work had those moments where you look on your life, you know, maybe you've taken a psychedelic or maybe you're in some kind of therapy or meditation and you look at your life and like, oh my God, every single thing I've ever done was selfish. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, so obvious.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so good, so good. I think uh, there's a one of my favorite quotes by Anthony DeMello, who was a Jesuit priest back in the day, and he said, uh, "Spirituality is waking up, and the first the first rule of waking up is realizing that you don't want to." Right, because part of that is realizing the selfishness of our actions, and I, that just really resonated with me about what you just said. I'm gonna I'm gonna use this as a as a springboard. To, to talk about um, uh, connecting that or not even connecting, but just getting your input and insight into um, climate change and conspiracy theories and uh, how those two things are maybe starting to intersect because there seems to be a lot of, uh, a lot of interconnectivity between the two of them. And then I do want to sort of go off a little bit towards the end of this interview uh, and, and maybe dialogue about extraterrestrials and the rise of, you know, UFO sightings and confirmations uh, and stuff like that, because I feel like there's a lot of uh, juicy stuff yeah. in there. But let's just talk about climate change, because I'd love to get your perspective on, on how conspiracy theories have played into uh, climate change and the action that maybe needs to be taken.
1: Yeah, well, both sides hold some uh, uh, somewhat diluted conspiracy theory about the other, you know, that the fossil fuel companies uh, knowingly conspired to suppress uh, evidence of global warming uh, to protect their profits. Um, and on the skeptic side, that the climate change industrial complex basically uh, maintains billions of dollars of funding by perpetrating this, by perpetuating this um, uh, very sketchy, scientific theory, uh, and in order to maintain it, they adjust, quote unquote, the raw data and, and uh, promulgate these models that generate alarm and so on and so forth. Like there's kind of a conspiracy theory on both sides. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that my interactions that I've had with actual humans on both sides, lead me to think that both sides are wrong. Mm-hmm. About that, uh, that that in fact, people on on both sides are quite sincere, and intelligent, and believe themselves to be of high integrity. So, what I look for is the various forms of institutional, collective confirmation bias, mm-hmm. by which theories paradigms are maintained. Uh, without any again without any like deliberate intent but it's like what gets funded what gets published what research questions and results are going to help your career and which are going to destroy your career Mm. and this is true in many many fields Um, and a lot of them are operating in the climate change field if you come out with a skeptical view then you have trouble getting published. You 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 get um, attacked by the media sometimes, like which doesn't mean like it doesn't see this doesn't mean that the orthodoxy is wrong. It just means that if it is if it is wrong, we'd have trouble knowing that. Hmm. And this is true <laughs> across many um, scientific fields, especially where money is involved.
0: Do you feel like, and this is more, again, this is more of a personal question, but do you feel like the conspiracy theories surrounding climate change are slowing down the collective action that we can take? Do you feel like there's merit to them? Like what what role I, do you I think that,
1: in? I mean, I, you know, I wrote a whole book on this. I mean, I think that, yeah. that the, I mentioned it before, that carbon reductionism is a problem uh, that basically... My view is that Earth is alive, that its organs are things like water, soil, forests, whales, wetlands, uh, eagles, condors, every beavers, um, every ecosystem, every species is an organ of a living being, which means that if we continue to clear-cut the forests and strip mine the minerals, I mean, even like copper and gold are part of a Energy physiology of this planet. I've been reading some indigenous people who are saying exactly this. Um, If we continue to destroy that, if we continue to dump poison in the form of herbicides and insecticides and toxic waste uh, into the environment, if we continue to destroy life like that, then even if we cut emissions to zero tonight, Earth would still die of organ failure. Hmm. It would die a death of a million cuts. Because the the especially the forests and wetlands and oceans these are organs that maintain homeostasis. Mm-hmm. Like the Amazon governs the flow of fluids across at least half the planet. And regardless of its carbon sequestration, even if that is not a factor, if you cut down the Amazon, you're going to have drought in the California Sierra. Uh, you're going to have, I mean, you're going to have. It would be like like if you destroyed some of your organs. Well, is your temperature going to go up or not? Not the right question. So the priorities that come from this um, are first and foremost, conservation and protection. And a close second is regeneration, restoration. And Hmm. third is to stop dowsing the world in poison. Yeah. (laughs) And if we do those things, we're going to end up producing a lot less fossil fuels too, as a side effect because you can't frack and drill and strip mine and so forth without doing other ecological harm. So, so yeah. basically I say in climate change, that we're actually in the wrong debate. Yeah. And the reason we're in that debate is based on a kind of reductionism. to hmm. you know, Try to reduce a complicated thing, a complex thing to one thing. Yeah. Same as everything else.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's, I, that's, I feel, yeah. I feel like that's a that's a big <laughs> that's a big conversation. I didn't mean to sort of yeah. open up Pandora's box on that, but well, just before we move on to the other topic, what's the book that you, what's the title of the book that you're referring to, so that people can check oh, it out? Oh,
1: I, I called it "Climate: A New Story."
0: Okay, yeah, great, yeah. great. Okay, so let's let's just wrap things up here by talking about aliens, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> by talking about extraterrestrials, and and you know, I think it's it's been interesting because we as conspiracy theories, you know, are rising and you've got pizza gates and all these types of things going on. And they seem to be getting more and more traction and mainstream uh, popularity. Suddenly, you have the US government, you know, in the last couple of years saying, yep, yeah, we have UFO sightings, we've seen it. Uh, and yet I have been shocked by how little attention this has actually gotten. I was like, I saw right. it, I was like, wait, did they just... Did they just announce that they have seen extraterrestrials and no one's talking about it? Like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I would, I just wanted I would, I I'm, I don't really have a question. More so I just want to dialogue and get your thoughts on this. And like, yeah, how does this play? Any conspiracy theories? I mean, you touched on the, the concept of being able to connect, you know, with with other beings that that can help us through you know, this, this time that we're in right now. So maybe I'll just hand over the the talking stick to you and and just let you run with this.
1: I I share your astonishment. Uh, This is, (laughs) you know, uh, another kind of ignorance. If something doesn't fit into the world as you've known it, then you just just ignore it. Like pretend that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, But I'm like, yeah, I was, this I think was two or three years ago. I'm like, there, in the New York Times, that's when it started, two or three years ago, there was an article in the New York Times <clears throat> saying, yeah, the Navy's been having these sightings, trained pilots, trained observers, lots of data. And, and I'm like, disclosure just happened. Yeah. And, you know, it was just got buried in the news cycle. Uh, and it's because we're not actually ready as a, as a collective to take this information in. It exists in another reality to really understand what's going on with ETs and all this, even like the pizza gate stuff, you know, I'm not sure how up your listeners are on this, but you know, the Podesta emails that were revealed by WikiLeaks, there's like a few of them that have like these really weird references to like, you know, for this fundraiser, you know, this exclusive fundraiser will source our pizzas and hot dogs from the usual source in Chicago. And it's like happening in Washington. Like what are they talking about? You know, there's a a bunch of references like that. Uh, And it turns out that, you know, pizza and hot dogs are code words for underage girls and underage boys Mm. in like this pedophilia world, right? So it's like, so the, 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 you know, part of my mind is like, okay, that proves it, right? But actually it's more like there's this whole shadow reality because once you step into that, then pretty soon you're in this world of Luciferian cults, you know, and uh, reptilian uh, extraterrestrials and secret bases and underground tunnels and like, you just, and, and, you know, mind control technology. Like there's no clear dividing line where objectively verifiable reality ends and speculation and myth begin. Mm. There's there's no dividing line. So what the way I see it, is that there are, um, like, imagine it this way, that there are multiple timelines, parallel realities with multiple histories, multiple pasts, and leading to multiple futures. And we're on one of those, one of these streams of reality. And there are these other ones that you can branch off onto. If you dive down into that rabbit hole and you start watching these these. Uh, defectors um, who claim to have been in secret military programs and so on. like it's, it, you, it's like you're entering a different reality. And the more deeply you enter it, the more evidence you find. Hmm. So the mind of separation thinks, well, that's what was really real. Mm-hmm. But it's actually that you've entered a different reality. The thing is, sometimes through something akin to quantum tunneling, pieces of these other realities penetrate into our own Uh, and they are easily rejected um, because there's not a lot of them and people are, as we were saying, ignorant. Mm -hmm. But what's happening now is that our reality, as we were saying before, is unraveling. Yeah. And the, the walls that kept these other streams of reality from encroaching too much are really starting to to fray. And so, so, we're, we're getting like all kinds of weird data points coming in um, that may cause people to doubt what is real. Uh, or you could look at like these multiple timelines converging in a special moment of chaos mm. and then diverging, radiating out into the future where we have a moment of choice where we align with one or another of these futures. Hmm. So, so, it's not only, uh, an, you know, it's not just an intellectual choice of what do I believe that can be made with evidence. It is also a, a, a spiritual choice that we cannot abdicate to evidence, but we, we are choosing who we will be. When we choose what world and what reality we live in, we're also choosing who we are. Hmm. And you can feel a, a different vibration among these different conspiracy theories. You know, like you go into one of these and it changes you. Yeah. And that's how I distinguish. Like, that's how I know what's what's true. Who do I become inhabiting this particular stream of reality? Do I become more happy, more active, more empowered? Or do I shrivel up <laughs> uh, into, you know, conspiracy website addiction? Like, this these are important data points that, that we do not get through the mind. Yeah. So really to understand the ETs, um, you cannot start by asking, are they objectively, literally real or not? Because some things about them, they're just going to mess with you. Yeah. Yeah, even, even the way that the UFOs fly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they were, yeah. In was... our
1: Newtonian reality, they wouldn't <laughs> be able to make sharp angle, right angle turns and accelerate that fast. The G-forces would kill everybody aboard. So they're not actually real in the way that hard discrete objects are real. But that doesn't mean that they are fantasies, hoaxes, or delusions either. Yeah. They're really calling, they're part of the breakdown of our our reality. Like they're an encroachment of something from a really different uh, universe Hmm. than what we have boxed ourselves into.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. I mean, it, it, there's, there's, so, there's so much to this conversation that, that I would love to get into, and I think I'll, I'll maybe pull out a few other pieces. Um, I think the fascinating part to me about what you just said is how, again, just looping in ignorance of how this information has come forward and largely the collective psyche has just sort of brushed it aside. Right, you have the main governing body sort of saying, like, yep, this is this is here. And you can go watch the footage. And you know, I watched the footage and same thing, like seeing the way that the the crafts move, and it's like, holy cow, like what the what the heck is that? Like what's what's going on there? But I, I'm curious as to sort of two, two or three things. One, and maybe I'll ask them individually. One, what do you feel this points towards in terms of our collective consciousness and our and our sort of collective
1: path forward Con- is this or maybe you should can- just ask all three of them so that so we can uh, and i'll just yeah. make a you know i'll wrap them into a concluding statement and maybe we'll okay. have to do this again someday
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so what, what do you think this says about our collective consciousness and its path forward and is there is there something within the, the sort of rise or acknowledgement of extraterrestrials' existence that we should take into consideration about the main sort of challenges or obstacles that we're facing as a species? I know those are big, big questions, um, but I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. And maybe, maybe we'll have to do part three specifically about this.
1: The first thing that, that, that comes to me is just similar to what I was saying before about these experiences that are gifted to us from outside of what we thought was real. I mean, this is one of these beings knocking on the door, asking us to come out and play in a larger reality. And so so I would just say that we should receive this gift, um, this disruption, this disturbance. And any time you think that you know, and any time you feel despair, Because despair actually is the translation of grief into a story of what is possible and impossible. Anytime you feel that, ask yourself, does my despair take into account the reality of UFOs? Does my despair take into account all of these other data points that are encroaching on the reductionistic Newtonian force-based causality that... We assume, as a culture, is what is real. It is going to be humiliating for modern society, and that's good. Uh, we need humiliation. Humiliation means something that makes you humble, right? Something that gives you humility yeah uh, that's the only way out of the prison that we've constructed of the world only that's the only exit from the world destroying machine yeah, and so. Anything like the UFOs that that violently contradicts what we thought was real, that is humiliating and that's good. And maybe we can, you know, I could play with metaphors about the alienated parts of ourselves, uh, all of the things that we've cast out of reality that are, I'm not saying that that the UFOs, the ETs are um, generated by that, but they are attracted to it. They give expression to these banished energies mm-hmm. and meet us uh, in our quest for, uh, to come into a more complete, uh, to come into fuller versions of who we are, uh, to, extend our <clears throat> to extend our relationships beyond what was possible in the world of the separate self humanity as the lords and possessors of nature. Um, we are, they are, yes, the invitation is for us to make friends again with what has been alien. And this not only includes star beings, um, but everything else that we've alienated and cast out as well hmm. uh, to, to approach the banished knowledge. And it could be in medicine. It could be in in politics, you know, everything that we've banished. uh, Those who we see as our enemies, those who are irredeemable. uh, It's to enter into a spirit of friendship. That is what the invitation is uh, from the ETs Mm -hmm. to the collective psyche. It is uh, an invitation to take up the attitude of friendship in greeting all that we have banished.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so well said. So well said. All right. Well, listen, Charles, this was uh, such an honor to get to connect with you again and dive, <laughs> dive down the, the proverbial rabbit hole in some of these topics. And I really value and, and honor and respect your, your perspective. And I, yeah, I would, I would love to further this conversation at some point. And uh, for, for the people that are out there, that maybe didn't catch the last episode, definitely go back and check out the, the last episode with Charles. And where, where can they go to learn a little bit more about you and, and your work just before we end, end today's session? Uh, the internet. Okay. <laughs> just Charles Eisenstein. Yeah. We've, we've got, we'll have the links in the show notes and you can check it all out there. Um, and you, you, he's got some great, uh, talks on YouTube as well, giving some, answering some great questions. So definitely check that out as well. Um, thank you so much for, for this conversation today. And for everyone that's out there, don't forget to leave a rating and review, share, subscribe. Uh, and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.